One, two, three. Hello. You have discovered the Felon File. Felonfile.com is a podcast exploration and discussion of law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Felon File is hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author and researcher. The Shade of Blue Stories for Felon File today, the little no, but famous captain of detectives and chief of police for Charlotte, North Carolina. Background Music Hard Boiled hosted by Purple Planet The sponsor for today's episode of The Felon File is The Raven's Glass Pub Asheville's Best Spurious Restaurant and Pub Scott, recording. Welcome back to Felon File, and thank you, Victoria, for starting us out. This is your host, Scott Lunsford, coming to you from the International Podcast and Recording Studio located at Scratch Ankle, North Carolina. Just west of Beer City, USA, Asheville, North Carolina. East of Candler, North Carolina. And make a left at Inca. And you will be there. Welcome back. Hope you had a good week. And we're hoping you enjoy this Shade of Blue story that we have for you today. We're talking about a gentleman from North Carolina. Charlotte, North Carolina. Actually, he was born in South Carolina, but he did move to, to Charlotte and opened a shoe store. The man was an excellent shoe salesman. Just so happens that he was also a natural-born detective. As a matter of fact, J. Edgar Hoover with the FBI referred to him as the finest detective in the United States. And this was going on about the same time that the director, J. Edgar Hoover, was having to deal with another gentleman from the South and from North Carolina that we had spoken of in another podcast, Justin Means, private investigator, FBI agent, and con man supreme. But that's But we've already talked about Justin, and if you want to find out a little bit more about him, you can go back and listen to the previous podcast. Highly recommend it. Scott, excuse the interruption. You are referring to episode 6-1. Titled Justifying the Means, or Just a Con Man. Still available to listen to online. Thank you, Victoria. Today's Shade of Blue story, we're going back to November 15th, 1933. Where four men in the city of Charlotte town at that time population about 80,000 blocked in an armored truck with the Charlotte Federal Reserve bank money that they had just picked up at the train depot the individuals blocked off the car on the highway rushed the car cut off the lock with some wire cutters disarmed the driver and made off with about $100,000 cash. And if we do the math on it, that's worth about $1.8 million in today's cash and banknotes. Now, at that time, Chief of Detectives Frank Littlejohn was sent to investigate. 
Only a few days before he had gotten a tip, his informants in the crime community of Charlotte, that something big was going to go down, and it did. Little John, through his nationwide network of sources and information, he was, didn't, it didn't take him long to figure out it was a mob hit, but that was pretty much all he knew at the time. Now, Little John was an interesting man, very tall, lanky, thin. Every photo I've seen of him, he has a very large nose, and according to the writings in the newspapers at the time, he had a oversized ego to match. He was good, and he knew it. And like I said, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover had called him the finest detective in the United States. He was born in South Carolina and moved to Charlotte in 1917 to run, this, to run a shoe store. In the 1920s, Little John worked as an undercover federal agent to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan. Charlotte hired him for 80 days in 1927 to bust an uptown prostitution ring. The shoe salesman stayed on with the police force after that, stayed with them for over 30 years, eventually rising to the rank of the police chief. Back to our 1933 Fast and Furious armed robbery. The getaway car was soon located outside the city limits of Charlotte. This, the bad guys had stolen brand new black Plymouth from an East Moorhead Street two weeks before the robbery of the mail and armor truck and kept it hidden until they needed it. Detective Little John had told his officers to drive every route to determine where the thieves might have been hiding. He instructed postal carriers to ask if anyone on their routes had recently rented a garage, and that worked out for him. A woman on 10th Street ended up saying she had rented a room to two men and arranged for them to use her neighbor's garage. And guess what they put in that garage? A black Plymouth. Brand new. The landlady had seen them heading west on foot. Based on the reports of the robbery, they knew there were two more bad guys involved. Little John and his men headed west also, following a tip about an unfamiliar car near the site of the Plymouth theft. Police found the second hideout there. The occupants had left in a hurry. Little John sorted through the, what was left behind. 27 pieces of torn paper, which when he, like a jigsaw puzzle, reassembled them, turned out to be a Chicago rent receipt. He got descriptions from the landladies who had seen these individuals, who told them that one of the men was also carrying a violin case. And that was probably for the Tommy gun that they used in the robbery. Based on the receipt, descriptions, and fingerprints, Detective Little John headed to Chicago. Now, meanwhile, in Chicago, Al Capone and, and Roger the Terrible Toothy we're in a struggle for who was going to control Chicago's illegal liquor trade. Compone ended up framing Toothy in the kidnapping of a rich 
beer making magnet, William Ham, as in Ham's beer. This was one crime he didn't commit, though. So Toothy sent his men to Charlotte to raise as much money as he could for his court defense. That's what the money was for, to pay his attorneys. Toothy hadn't figured on Little John and the investigative prowess and determination of the man. Two weeks after the crime, Little John had rounded up most of Toothy's gang. Basil the Owl, Ludwig Dutch Schmidt, and Isaac Costner were behind bars. Each man ended up spending 30 years in prison for the robbery of the mail truck and armored car. But they weren't able to recover the money and Toothy was able to beat the beer maker's kidnapping frame up. Now Big Al, not to be undone, tried it again. He framed Toothy in the kidnapping of Frank the Barber Factor. And you may recognize that last name, Factor. He was actually the brother of the cosmetic bigwig Max Factor. And Toothy was acquitted on this too. He was not prosecuted also for his part in the Charlotte holdup. In August of 1940, the courthouse hosted the trial. Now, going against the Chicago mob was not necessarily Little John's big claim to fame. Going back to 1940, he became involved in what was called the Dale Wiesenhart case. Now, this is a case in which Fred Jimmy Dale and his wife, Renee Duffy, and the good doctor, W.E. Wishart, late of the county of Mecklenburg, faced charges that they had willfully and feloniously conspired, confederated, and agreed together to knowingly and intended to cheat and defraud a Mr. Rufus Bryant, who happened to be a tobacco farmer from in Sampson County. Uh, Sampson County, beautiful place. Uh, spent quite a bit of time there. The North Carolina Justice Academy, the main campus, is located in Sampson County. Now what happened was our farmer, Rufus Bryant, carried a load of tobacco to the market at Durham. The then, after working so hard, set about procuring a little companionship for the night with a little help from the Hotel Bellman at the place he was staying at. Now, the Bellman set him up with Duffy, also known as Miss Jimmy Dale. She came to his room. He assured her he wasn't that kind of a man who normally did such things. This is from the court testimony. That he was married and this was his first time. Well, it may have been his first time, but it wasn't his last, at least as far as Duffy was concerned. They continued their get-togethers a few times over the next couple of months. Rufus, as she called him, learned she was poor and had fallen on hard luck and bad times. Now, he told her, according to, again to his testimony, I'm not rich at all. I was a poor man and a hard-working man, but... I could help her out some. 
that I did not approve of such things as she was having to do. So he gave her a little extra money. This had been going, this ended up going on for quite some time. Early in 1938, she told the good farmer, Rufus, that she was pregnant and the baby was his. Long story short, eh, she wasn't pregnant really. She and her husband had come up with this plan to get more money from Rufus, the old farmer. Well, he's referred to by Duffy as the old farmer. He was actually 42 years old. Dale even advised one of her friends, who was also, quote, in the business, that she should go to the North Carolina's tobacco market there in Durham and find herself her own farmer. They were an easy mark, and do just like she had done. Now, Dale and Duffy successfully were able to finagle $2,000 from Rufus before he wised up. That's a lot of money back then. Much was made about how she'd gained weight, and she looked pregnant, and there was a real baby. Yes, they actually found a real baby, one they'd gotten from a girl who didn't want to keep it. Dr. Wiesenart apparently, allegedly, according to Charlotte detectives, Dr. Wishart had helped them procure the baby. But that's the real mystery in the whole case. Apparently, the consensus was, did the doc know that the Dales were going to use the baby to work out a con of some sort? And based on the detailed testimony by another working girl, the investigators and prosecutors believe the doctor was involved and they indicted him. Now, when the case did go to court, the jury didn't agree with what the detectives were saying. Dr. Wishart was acquitted at the trial, although Dale and Duffy were found guilty and sentenced to prison terms ranging from two to seven years. Now, I have dug and looked and tried to find what happened to that baby. I haven't been able to find any mention of it in any further court records or documentation uh, of that particular trial or Dale and Duffy's criminal record. Now, as might be expected, the good doctor... He didn't care for Frank Littlejohn, the chief detective. He felt that the chief detective had intentionally tried to defame and smear his good name and developed this animosity between the two. Now, the good doctor did have enough clout to direct some efforts against the chief of detectives and did so. Now, Chief of Detectives Little John had his own animosity about the case, uh, particularly over the chief of police, Chief Nolan's decision to go to city court and reduce the bond or have the bond for Dale and Duffy reduced dramatically. This was after Little John had gone to such extent to put together a very complicated case on the three individuals. There was no bond that needed to be posted for the good doctor. Uh, the trial ended up concluding in late August of 1944. By early the next month, Chief Nolan 
had hauled Little John before the Civil Service Review Commission, charging him with malfeasance. Now, in a show of support, the Civil Review Commission committed to pay for Little John's legal fees and the expenses he got during the trial, during the review. Now, remember, this is 1940. What's going on in the rest of the world? The London, the London Blitz is happening. Headlines of the newspapers, Nazis smash ruthlessly at flaming London. Local headlines covered the heated battle of the chief of police and Captain Littlejohn. Chief Nolan expressly denied that he had suspended Littlejohn in retaliation for his dogged gathering of evidence against the good doctor. But the hearing soon put that kind of to the test. One witness for the chief of police, a Mr. Al Nelson, testified that he had signed his affidavit that accused Captain Littlejohn of taking bribes. He did so in the good doctor's office. The next day, the headlines left no doubt about the connection between the infighting going on and the fraud case, the charges brought against and the idea that the charges brought against Captain Littlejohn by the chief of police were directly linked to the Dale Wishart case that had been closed out the month before. Now, Captain Littlejohn and his attorney refused to present evidence and were planning to mount a defense in court if the review commission found anything against him. The commission heard testimony and even had some good laughs at the implausibility of a couple of the witnesses that were brought before them. This included Al Nelson, character with a quite a checkered criminal history. He told the story about Little John taking bribes, but he never told the same story the same way. Another witness claimed Little John conspired in the running of houses of prostitution, but no evidence to this was actually placed before the commission. Now, Chief Nolan even testified about the bribes, but then he admitted when he was cross-examined by Little John's lawyer that he had relied on, on Al Nelson's statements alone and had never talked to Little John or any of the other officers that were involved in the raid that Nelson claimed the bribes had occurred at. He accepted Al Nelson's word totally, and the chief admitted that he didn't know that Nelson's affidavit against Little John had been signed in the good doctor's office, and he also didn't know that Nelson had been convicted several times of perjury and lying in court. When asked if that information would have made any type of difference in his actions, Chief of Police Nolan said, yes, yes it would have. Now the newspaper accounts were all the rage. It left to their readers imagination whether Captain Little John was being set up. Now the Review Commission dropped three of the seven charges against Little John. Of the remaining four, two more were later dropped after further review. The fact that 
Captain Littlejohn had refused to give one of the officers reward money that he claimed he was owed, and that Littlejohn had misled a grand jury about gambling and horse racing that had occurred at a Charlotte club, uh, Littlejohn still had to answer these two charges in Superior Court. Now, this began a whole new trial, a criminal trial, that the newspapers ate up, of course. The prosecutor at the time, H.L. Taylor, according to an article in the Raleigh News and Observer, bitterly attacked Captain Littlejohn for not taking the stand in the Dale Wishart case and again lambasted him for not appearing on the stand in that particular trial in Superior Court. The newspapers quoted the district attorney as saying, he sits sublimely by and makes no denial from this witness stand of the charges. Little John's attorney pulled no punches either. And of course, any fans of Perry Mason knows you do not have to testify in court in your own behalf. That's entirely up to you and entirely up to the uh, attorney that you have representing you. And Little John's attorneys pulled no punches about the whole matter either. They showed the, they showed the jury that Mr. Taylor, the prosecutor, had lots of animosity towards a good captain and was publicly known to dislike him. And he was acting as a private prosecutor that had been hired separately. Then we have the city attorney who was also working against him and who the captain had had run-ins in the past with while the attorney Scarborough was representing the, uh, the Civil Service Commission. And of course, there was another individual. We have H.L. Strickland, one of the attorneys in the original case, who was called as a witness for the prosecution. But he denied to testify because it was getting to be, it was starting to become a beatdown, and Little John was getting the favor of the press and the public in the matter. Now, if you remember, there were still two more charges that were brought up in the civil service hearing. And the committee spokesman, the civil service committee spokesman, came out and said, for the record, that he was guilty of conduct unbecoming an officer, and that supported his dismissal from the police force. But it didn't take too long for the rest of the commission to come out and say, that's not how we voted. And all the charges ended up being dismissed by the commission. Little John was found not guilty of the criminal charges. And the editorials in the News and Observer and in the Charlotte papers voiced their opinion on the attacks of Little John and the desperate attempts for several years to get control of the police department there at the Queen City of Charlotte. And, of course, headlines in January of 1941 announced that Little John was back at his desk working as captain of investigations. But he hadn't been absent because of the review commission and all the other issues that were going on. But he had been out of town because he had been helping 
with President Roosevelt's third inauguration. One of six presidential inaugurations for which he had been asked to provide security for, thanks to his well-known legendary ability to recognize known gangsters on site. Six years later after that, guess what? Little John was named Chief of Police for Charlotte, North Carolina. And as Chief of Police, he continued the pattern that he made of his investigative career. He stayed close to the criminal community and made use of widespread assortment of informants. One case in 1957, the Chief of Police, who normally doesn't work cases, one of those informants helped him arrest three men who were preparing a bombing attack on a black school. The criticism of his tactics also continued. On the witness stand in a trial, the defense lawyer for the a defense lawyer questioned him about the criminal record of one of his informants. Now, according to a writer of the day, Little John exploded on the bench, yelling at the defense attorney, Who do you want me to get to join an outfit like this? The minister of the Presbyterian Church? Unquote. And as I said, Little John kept his hand in his investigations. He once dressed up in a suit and tie and a hat and went looking for a fugitive wanted for armed robbery. The man's friends were loyal and of course they wouldn't rat him out. That's when Little John expressed his dismay and pulled from his pocket what he said was an insurance policy. Passed it around to the guys. They looked at it and Little John told them, you know, it's a Dang shame we can't find him. A relative of his has left him over $10,000. Well, word got back to the man, and he got in touch with Little John, and it only took about 30 minutes for Little John to have him in custody and locked up in a Charlotte jail. Little John continued his service. As a police officer, he spent 12 years as the chief of police, always outspoken, publicly criticized several city council decisions, and the city council ended up firing him 15 days before he was scheduled to retire. Fighting that dismissal, he got it overturned and was able to finish his career with 30 years in service with the city of Charlotte and take a pleasant retirement, or at least I hope it was pleasant for him. Chief Little John ended up passing away in 1963. He is buried in Cherokee County, South Carolina, where he was from. And there are lots of stories about his bizarre investigative ways that actually worked for him. So that's our Shade of Blue story for this week. We hope you enjoy it. Victoria is going to close us out in just a few minutes. Remember to come back next Saturday at 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Times for another Shade of Blue story here on The Felon File. You can reach out to us through our website, felonfile.com or scottlunsfordauthor.com where you can find a link to buy some of my books, uh, fiction and nonfiction works. And you can also from there take a look at some other websites we have linked to and if you like, you can purchase a Felon File coffee mug or a Felon File t-shirt. 
Nothing says leave me alone in the morning better than drinking your coffee out of a felon file coffee mug. So until we get back together again, remember, be safe, be secure. Try to help somebody out if you have the opportunity. Always a good thing to do. And we'll talk to you again next week. Victoria, you've got the control board again. Bye, y'all. You have been listening to The Felon File Podcast with your host Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast or Scott's books and writings go to scottlunsfordauthor.com and felonfile.com. Scott can also be contacted at these websites. Be sure to check out the stuff page on the website. Pick up a Felon File t-shirt or coffee mug. You can also support the Felon File podcast by buying us a coffee from the link on the website. This is Victoria your producer. Thank you for listening. Thank you.